Hello and welcome to another installment of Script to Screen, a screenwriting podcast with the Rider Die Chicks. I am Mercedes. I'm Deanna. And I'm Angela. And this time we are covering a classic One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, written by Lawrence Hoven and Bo Goldman and based on the novel by Ken Kesey. Had you guys read the novel? No. no, I knew it was a novel, but I've never read it. I haven't either, but I feel like I probably should now that I've seen the movie so many times. <laughs> so if you're new to the podcast, we do like to go over the credits uh, just in case you aren't familiar. So the written by credit is what we're covering this time around, which is what we usually end up covering. I'm, I'm anxious to get some other credits in there. <laughs> um, but just for your reference, written by indicates that the writer is entitled to the story by credit and the screenplay, um, screen, screenplay by credit. And the story by credit is anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the movie. And the screenplay by credit is for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. So both Lawrence Hilvin and Bill Goldman get the written by credit. So a little bit of background, just going to read the description for the movie. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a 1975 American drama film ba- directed by Milos Forman based on the 1962 novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. When convicted criminal Random McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson, is transferred to a psychiatric ward from a prison farm, he expects to write out his sentence in a low-key, relaxed environment. Upon his arrival, however, he is surprised to find that his plans don't align with the ward's stark head nurse, Mildred Ratched, played by Louise Fletcher. I wanted to get into a little bit about like the, the journey of this movie getting made, because apparently it wasn't a through line. Um, I take this information that comes next from um, an interview with Michael Douglas, How We Made One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from The Guardian. It's a really interesting article. If you haven't read it, I definitely recommend. Kirk Douglas bought the stage and film rights to Cuckoo's Nest and would play McMurphy in the first adaptation of the novel, which was a play adapted by Dale Wasserman that ran from 1963 to 1964 at the Court Theater in New York City. I have never been to New York City, but I want to go so bad after the pandemic because I want to see a real New York play. Yes. (laughs) Have you guys gone? I went in high school with my choir and that was awesome because I've been to New York. I went to New York State a bunch of times, but New York State and New York City is a very bit different, so. We saw Mary Poppins on Broadway. It was amazing. It was really fun. Sounds amazing. But yeah, we and needed to go back. <laughs> I do wonder what this would be like in play form, though, especially with Kirk Douglas playing McMurphy. I wonder how that would go. It would um, be really interesting to watch. I wonder if they have any of this film. I'm going to have to do some research and see if they have like recorded productions of this specific adaptation. But he, so Kirk Douglas uh, wanted to develop it for film and play McMurphy again, but he never got the chance to develop it. Um, but it's eventually his son, Michael Douglas, would end up co-producing it with Saul Zanes, um, who is the owner of Fantasy Records, which is now transitioned into the Saul Zanes company. And they produced Amadeus, which I thought was pretty cool, because that is another movie that I really love. Mm -hmm. As far as the writing goes, initially, the author of the book, Ken Kesey, was slated to write the screenplay, 
but that would later go on to, um, he would later go on to sue the producers for 5% of the film's gross and $800,000 in punitive damages based on a breached handshake contract. I'm not exactly sure what went down. I couldn't figure out what was going on there, but basically they asked him to write the screenplay and then it didn't. Um, he, he didn't get the chance to. He also thought that Jack Nicholson was wrong for the role of McMurphy and refused to watch the film. As far as we know, that's the that's the drama on that. But I'm just like, I really wonder. He must have. I, you know what? As mad as I probably would be if I didn't get to write the screenplay for my own, like the adapted screenplay for my own work. I think I probably still watch it out of bitterness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just like, this is why you get everything in writing over handshake contracts don't exist. No, no, people are snakes. Yeah, trust no one. <laughs> get it in writing get it in writing and notarize it. and notarize it coming from, aren't you a notary Ange? oh no my dad was <laughs> uh, that's crazy mm-hmm. but you know what that's just like stephen king didn't watch stanley kubrick's the shining either mm-hmm. so you know i guess there's a lot of tension between the literary world and uh, screenwriting <laughs> I think it's just such a like it's probably just a fine line because it's it's their vision ultimately and when they I think there's a lot of writers that maybe are probably traditionalists like novelists and stuff like that that are traditionalists and they're like this wasn't ever meant to be for the screen and to to try to adapt it it, it just kind of pulls away because there there are some books that I've read that I feel that way off the top of my head I can't think of one maybe dandelion wine which I do think did get an adaptation at some point but I think it's kind of the same reason why Fahrenheit 451 doesn't work as an adaptation if I've seen the adaptation both of them there is the new one with Michael B Jordan too and we I don't talk about that like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so sad because I love Michael B Jordan <laughs> Oh, wait, isn't he the one you, you called Michael B. Anthony? Did I? I must have at some point. I, that sounds like me. <laughs> Just mixing up two icons. <laughs> that sounds like me for sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, I feel the same. Anytime I'm reading a book and we're mainly in a character's mind throughout the whole story, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun to translate to the screen. I was like, either a lot of narration, or we're just going to be staring at a person thinking for a long time, and it doesn't usually work as well. But this one was, like, we'll, we'll get into it, but it was very descriptive, but some just, I don't know, but I don't know what he was mad about, because I feel like it was, it was pretty true to his story, but maybe, oh, but like you said, he never watched it, so he never found out. He was just mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we've mad. also never read the book. True, true, true. Yeah, it could be completely different because I'll, I'll say the script was, was different than what we ended up screening. And of course, I don't, I, I'm like 90% sure this wasn't the final draft. It didn't have the, um, the draft dates on this one. So mm-hmm. it was kind of hard to tell like what draft this was, but I'm sure it wasn't the final draft. So, because um, a lot did, did change from script to screen. But with that being said, let's jump into it shall we <laughs> let's do it all right so first things first we're gonna start with the page one breakdown which was um really interesting we'll go ahead and read the screen uh the the page first and then we will discuss it so d will you do the heading scene headings and action and yes. then and we can alternate voices 
Sure. Okay. All right. Exterior work farm, nightfall. All we see is an elevated shot of the distant mountains, rolling landscape, and McMurphy. One cheek laid open and crusted over with dried blood, his face and prison work clothes caked with dried sweat and dust as he sits on the very top of the water tower, watching the last rays of sunlight. A long moment passes before McMurphy's attention is drawn elsewhere and he looks down. Reverse shot, McMurphy's point of view. Far below in the prison yard, a man is seen hurrying across the yard where he joins a group of men composed of armed prison guards, officials and medics, a stretcher, an ambulance, a fire truck, and safety nets spread out at the base of the water tower. The man is seen talking to the officials, then a bullhorn is handed to him and they all look up at McMurphy. McMurphy, as he looks down on them, a searchlight is turned on him. McMurphy, this is Dr. Shankel from the infirmary. Can you hear me? McMurphy doesn't respond. Can you hear me, McMurphy? McMurphy doesn't respond. Another searchlight goes on as a second voice is picked up on the bullhorn. Why don't we just blast him for Christ's sake? He ain't gonna come down, you- The bullhorn is turned off. A long moment passes as McMurphy continues to squat on the tower and wait. He shivers against the coming night when- McMurphy! And scene. And scene. <laughs> so, already the style almost reads like prose to me. It's very detailed, and that's completely fine if you have a distinct vision in your mind as a writer. But bear in mind that when you do this, unless you're directing, a lot of this might have to be changed or taken out entirely. It's still a treat for the reader, though, I think. We're opening on an extremely dramatic, picturesque shot, which is setting up the film to open on a visually striking shot. Initially, it's a little hard to grasp what's happening as it's described, but the minor details, dried blood, prison work clothes, really strike intrigue and help to add clarification as we go along. And already I think we can tell that McMurphy isn't a chump and he knows how to play off of people. He uses the soft side of people to get what he wants. That's evident in the interaction with Shankle and he's not above causing a scene. He himself can be very dramatic in his selfish endeavors, hence the commotion below. And we know he's willing to hold out for what he wants because he doesn't even flinch at the thought of being shot down. And that's, I would say, once you watch the rest of the film, once you read the rest of the script, I think that's a pretty good description of McMurphy. He is selfish and he is willing to cause a scene because he does it multiple times throughout the movie. So I think that's really great that we were able to, or at least I was able to glean that from the first page. And it's something I think we should all be striving to do as writers. I agree. I just, like, this sounds like it was taken straight from the book. It does, doesn't but, it? Uh, but it makes it interesting because it reads very quickly, mm -hmm. but you still have all of these small details, like you said, where the reader is like, what the hell is going on? You mm -hmm. want to keep reading, and I, that's what you want to do on the first page. But I do like in the adaptation. I honestly would have loved to see this in the movie on screen. I do. Th I me mm -hmm. too. This would have been fantastic. I I remember sitting and watching because we've all seen this movie before. I haven't seen it in a really long time, and I remember sitting and watching the opening shot on the screen, and it's very scenic and beautiful and serene and everything that's described. But then we just kind of start, like, we get going, and mm -hmm. it's not as 
Like it's not as good as what's described on this page. It could have yeah. been so much better to me. Yeah. I really I, would have loved this. So one thing that I think for the readers um, or for the, for the listeners that haven't read the script um, prior to listening to this episode, this scene was completely taken out, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is so unfortunate because it is a really, it, it would have been a very striking scene. But I think ultimately what I found throughout the, throughout the actual screen version is that they took out a lot that didn't really serve, like, I think they... They took out extra detail that didn't really need to be there. I think they just wanted it to be like, if you could deduce that this is what what is happening, then we don't really have to show you like the transition from the, the work farm. And kind of what I equated it to is like, if you've ever taken an improv class, or at least a short form improv class, there's this rule where like, you've always known everyone else in the scene for at least five months. And that way you don't have to take up space in the scene with introductory nonsense, like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so because then it just, it feeds up time and you're trying to get through whatever the game is or whatever the scene is. Um, so that's kind of what I felt like they, they did here, something similar. It's just like, we could show this really picturesque, amazing opening shot that would explain like where McMurphy's coming from. But we can also kind of do that with the first interview he gets with Dr. Spippy. That'll explain everything. So we don't have to do the thing that would be really striking and beautiful. We could just get right into the film. But here's the thing about that with this film specifically, Mm -hmm. is that I get like, they went through and they cut all the darlings, apparently. Um, but they still kept that stupid picturesque opening shot of like the rolling hills and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that was unnecessary. If you're going to cut this scene, then you just cut the whole thing. Yeah. Because that was, it was just unnecessary. And it was long. It was long. It was a long shot. So they shot that car coming all the way around the mountain. Yeah. And it- <laughs> I'm like, no. It would, I cut it, cut it. I agree. It was definitely not as engaging as this would have been. Yeah. Yeah. I'm mad now. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I'm like, it's very much a darling. And I, I do, as we read, there was a lot that was cut. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else to add, Ange, on mm. page one? I I get that. I like that you get to be dropped in in, in the middle of an action. But just, like, it would have been the same. Because we, we didn't know what's happening uh, the way it's written on the page. We were dropped into a moment. But I guess they just wanted to drop us in a later moment in the story but I was like it it would have been nice to see and like you said it's like if if they still had like a scenic uh shot like that they might as well have used the one that they wrote instead of that other one but anyway I did like that um when I first watched it since I didn't know what I was missing I I didn't dropped in the mental hospital was like a way to do it but I think I still would have liked to see the the way it was written to be shot that way because that would have been nice Moving on to Act 1, which I titled, McMurphy is the Trouble Child. <laughs> <laughs> on the action slash dialogue imbalance, what I'm calling it, by page 2, we already get the sense that this writer is extremely descriptive. This, this script, for the most part, does read, if it's not like all dialogue, it's all action paragraphs on the page. Do you guys notice that? Mm-hmm. That's what really surprised me about this one. Because it's long, too. It's like 140 pages, right? Yeah. yeah. It's really long. And it's because of that description. So when I started, I'm not going to lie, as soon as I started looking at it, I was like, I'm 
I'm, I'm going to skip some maybe. <laughs> I, you know what? Oh, this I, is long. I will admit that I skipped through like a bunch of the pages that had to deal with that, that basketball game. Yeah. was just like, oh that was my a lot. God. That was a lot all on that basketball oh, game. And then it's gosh. so short, like <laughs> on the screen. It's, oh. It was oh so detailed too. I was like, I didn't realize I was reading a sports script. <laughs> That's why I'm wondering. I mean, it, it felt like you were reading paragraphs, maybe just like cut a little bit from the book mm-hmm. or like, like they were just like copying and pasting and then like doing minor edits. You know, like when like some people try to write an essay and they copy and paste it and they change like three words, but you know, you know, they pulled it from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it was like that. Uh, again, I've never read the book, but it was so much detail. And I understand how adapting a book can be difficult because you you want to decide what to put in and what to leave out as far as mm-hmm. details. And you want it to be, at, for the most part, I feel like most people want it to be as true to the original content as possible. So I definitely get why it was so long. I just, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> It's, I feel like he's, he, the, these, both of these writers were taking, um, a lot of liberties with the action and dialogue balance. And it's something that we kind of touched on in our Twin Peaks episode. Um, the idea of too much white space on the page being the stuff of nightmares for some script readers. But I think what's even scarier than that is not enough white space (laughs) because it, it starts to make you wonder, like, is this a screenplay or a novel? What did I sign up for? So... (laughs) My advice is like, I think remember that at the core of your, your work, there must be absolute purpose. So if you feel, if you really feel like you need those action paragraphs to be there, if they are engaging and worthwhile, the script reader won't be scared off. So that's why the first page, even though it's a lot of scene description, I still felt very engaged the whole time. It was very beautiful description. And I could see it in my mind's eye. That's why when I first, I hadn't seen this film in so long that I honestly believed that was how it started. I was like, no, that's very vivid. Actually, I remember remember. this. No. (laughs) (laughs) But like it, I mean, if you, if you can read through and you start to get bored, just delete it. Just delete it. It's like on the first page, you can get away with it because we understand that you're setting it up. And again, if it's, if it's well intentioned and it makes sense for it to be there, then that's fine. But when it's like that in your entire script, especially when you're just getting started, mm-hmm. like I should not look, flip through your script and be like, oh, I'm going to skip some parts because this is very long. Yeah. You, it's you do not want, yeah, you don't want the reader to feel like, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> Why is there so much? Yes. Yeah, so it, it's, again, it's about finding that balance, but also being purposeful when you decide to break a rule. Mm-hmm. Next, I want to do a quick note on all caps. So scene two, interior men's dorm, Oregon State Hospital, Dawn. Here's a tool that I don't think most novice writers either, they, they, they don't know if it's available to them or they don't know how to use it. You can use all caps as a way to tip your reader off to things of particular importance. So traditionally with all caps, in in your screenplay, you'll see it in scene headings, in character intros, in transitions. So that would be like what I read off, scene two, interior men's dorm, men's dorm. Um, and then like character intros, when you're introducing a character for the first time, 
you're indicating by putting their name in all caps. We haven't seen this person before. Take note. This is new. And then transitions is like cut to fade in, all that stuff. That's what you, you should by now already know. That's where all caps is used. But you can also use it in your scene description paragraphs. You can use it for like specific sound effects and special effects, which you'll see in this scene. They use humming sounds, clanking pipes, and hissing radiators. Slug lines, which are specific instances you want to bring to the reader's attention inside of the action paragraph. And um, important actions or objects. So things that you really think people should be paying attention to they, that they might just skim over. Like if I'm reading a script and somebody's about to get murdered, I might say, Danielle picks up the knife in all caps and walks towards the, the back room or something. It's specific details. And ScreenCraft actually has a really good article on this. I'm gonna put the link in the show notes for you guys. I definitely recommend that you read it. Um, just so you can kind of get a better idea of like, hey, this is a tool you can use. It's totally okay to use all caps. Just don't overuse it, please. Nobody wants to read a script that feels like it's screaming at you. <laughs> Not everything is always that important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of insert shots because I get on my nerves now more that I've been in film school. I'm like, oh, you're drawing my attention to that. I wonder if it's important. It probably is. If it's not, I'm going to be mad because you just wasted my time staring at that. But it's like, like you said, if it's a knife and we <laughs> see the insert shot on a close up of the knife, it's like, I think this is important. I get it. But mm -hmm. like you said, use sparingly or is a, it's effective, but used a lot. It's just like, oh, okay, I, I get it. You can move on now. <laughs> What did you guys think of when you first read on the page, the chronics versus the acutes? <laughs> I, I'm referencing page five, scene five, interior men's dorm day. For those following along, what what did what did you guys think about that? I thought we were in for a lot of non PC writing, <laughs> or but then again, you have to remember when this was written. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, seeing this, I, I remember how um, Nurse Ratchet later explains who's there and why, mm -hmm. like by choice or um, like who has to be there. Knowing that it makes sense, but when I first see it, you're like, what? <laughs> you're a little <laughs> confused. You're taken aback a little. You're like, what is, what does this mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just automatically feel offended because I was like, I know this is deals with mental health, but since I actually have a chronic illness, I'm like, hey, who are you telling out? What are you saying? <laughs> but yeah. I felt the same way. These, I thought were very, I'm going to say interesting distinguishers between these two very specific groups of patients. And I thought it would be important to touch on this. And I know Angie probably could touch on it a bit more, but from what I found, so acute is their acute is conditions that are severe and sudden onset and in mental health um, according to St. John's Healthcare London um, in mental health these types of illnesses call for immediate treatment and symptoms typically respond to treatment the symptoms the symptoms can be first time repeating or a worsening result of a continuing um, mental illness but then um, chronic is conditions that are long developing and in mental health, these can be mental illnesses that are long lasting. Um, and that was from Medline Plus. Is there anything else and from your, from your own experience that you can add to or 
Uh, yeah, with a chronic illness, like just from my own experience, I don't know how it works in the mental health world, but in, it's basically, if it's chronic, it most likely doesn't have a cure. It'll, it'll keep recurring or it can just stick with you for long periods of time. So it's like you don't necessarily get a break from it. And if you do, it's not a long break. It'll just keep coming back again and again. So it's just something you just have to live with and deal with. But yeah, and I don't, I've never had an acute illness. I, I wonder what those are like. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I do wonder too. I, I just, I found this to be something very important to touch on, especially as we get to know the patients. And even in the script, I think Dr. Spivy does um, refer to the patients like that. So I'm just like, I guess it was probably just terminology of the time to just group them in that way. But I feel like by today's standards, it would definitely be towing a line. I mean, if, if you as a listener feel differently, please let me know. I am interested to see your take. If you suffer from an acute mental illness or a chronic mental illness, I'm interested to learn how you feel. And I did notice that every time we're introduced to a new world in a lot of stories, you do pick up new terminology and lingo. And like in sci-fi or just Westerns, just, there's always like, a certain ver vernacular that we may, because we're not in that world or in that lifestyle, we may not know if that's a real term or not, or if it's a term created for the story. But mm -hmm. it's like it does, it does kind of set you apart from the world you're used to, and it's letting you know you're in a different world with new, with a different language, or it's used differently than how you may have experienced it. So that's how I thought of it after I was done being offended. <laughs> Good to know, Ange. Okay, here's another thing that I, I noticed. Nurse Ratchet, when she is um, introduced, because this is still kind of like the beginning sequence, even though the, the way that this is all unfolding, it does take up the entirety of the first act, which is just introducing us to the facility, the ward, the patients, and um, ultimately McMurphy. Uh, but Nurse Ratchet is always referred to as big nurse and this I think it's really interesting that she's only referred to Miss or to Miss Ratchet in dialogue but otherwise she's read as big nurse and she's like even her scene descriptions she's big nurse is she named in the book that's the thing I don't know I don't you know what she might not have been because I think nurse nurse Ratchet came After. as a result of the adapt, uh, adaptation, I think. Maybe oh. it was a combination of that then. Maybe they were just in between figuring out what they were actually going to call her. Hmm. Maybe it. Deanna might solve the mystery. Well, I'm just trying to, because why would, I was confused by that too. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you use her name? Yeah. But, they, but maybe they were in between like deciding, maybe they were going to change it to like nurse something else. And they were like, well, it's, she's the big nurse. So that's, that's her identifier for now. Yeah, because in the page opener, we started with the person just as, uh, his, before his dialogue, it just said man. And then once we learned his name, it switched over to his name. And I thought mm -hmm. it was going to happen like that when we were introduced to Nurse Ratchet and it didn't. So I was just like, oh, that's, that's different. And, uh, and I went with it, but I was like, that is, that is different. But the thing that I noticed is because, so typically when you're writing, you're, if you're going to do something like that, it would have to unfold like 
with the man if we don't clearly know who he is at the start you could say man and then switch it to the character's name once they are introduced but otherwise if you continued to have it read like this it would become extremely confusing for the reader like well who's nurse ratchet and who's big nurse even though you're trying to make it like they're the same person but somehow this didn't confuse me here i think they were both it was distinctive enough that i could deduce throughout the entire script that nurse ratchet was big nurse there was no mistake could you deduce it or was it because you've already seen the movie uh i feel like as i was reading it was i it was easy to tell because of her character i guess just how her character was but i i don't know did you guys feel differently like if you if you do you feel like you would have been able to see that Nurse Ratchet was actually Big Nurse if you hadn't seen the movie? I don't know. Yeah, because we all saw the movie first, so yeah. I can't separate it. But yeah, I definitely, when they said Big Nurse, I knew who they were referring to because I know who Nurse Ratchet is. But I honestly don't know if I would have been confused or not. I don't know. Because I, I agree with Ange. When they said Big Nurse, I automatically knew and assumed that it was Nurse Ratchet because I've seen it before. And like, who else would it be if I've seen it before? Yeah, that makes sense. I want to, I want to take a sidestep and ask you guys, what did you think of the the um, meeting with Doctor Spivy and McMurphy when he first gets there and they're kind of going through his file? What did you guys think of that? Because that whole interaction did the the dialogue between the men changed from script to screen. And honestly, I think the screen version was a bit better. I think the interaction between them on the page was a little bit too on the nose. What do you think? I think that it was better on screen. I agree. It felt more natural. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like the problem with this script is that it tries very, very hard. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it tries very hard. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. That's how I felt. I was just like, have to spoon feed me <laughs> exactly that's ex- that's exactly what the script is and i don't know if that's because they were having so many problems they really had to spoon feed this idea to get it made or what but mm-hmm. the movie this scene in particular was a lot better to watch and felt more natural and i also don't know if that was maybe because of jack nicholson or the direction but mm-hmm. it was much better the movie doesn't try hard it feels very natural you go with the flow and even though as you mentioned before we spend the whole first act as kind of getting to know everyone it doesn't feel tedious or long it feels Mm -hmm. necessary um whereas the script man it's just like one of those people where you're like calm down you're fine (laughs) we understand we We love you we accept you (laughs) yes that's exactly what the script is But the thing is, okay, so about that, just just kind of touching on that interaction, that scene, that was where I realized, like, wait a minute, this movie is much funnier than I remember. And I'll tell you the exact moment I laughed was when he's just like, why do you think these people think that you have a mental illness? And he's like, maybe it's because I fight fuck too much. And he's like, in, in the prison you were? <laughs> he's like, what? No, I just, before that. <laughs> You didn't remember that part? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. It's been years since I had seen this, and I was just like, oh my god. But I I love it, and I definitely think by this point, I can tell, even reading this, 
and I think this is probably because I had seen the movie before. I'm like, I feel like Jack Nicholson was the only person that could have played McMurphy. Reading it and seeing it. He was I the can't only see anyone else for the in role. that role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this was, this was made for him. Speaking of, moving on to act two, which I titled <laughs> McMurphy, Hero or Maniac? Fucking psycho. scene 24 interior day room day group therapy this is the first group therapy session this is where we really start to establish mcmurphy as the straight man and through his gaze we can see clearly the lack of attention giving to given to striking details throughout the facility um so in particular i will say the man that has peed on himself that's that's nailed to the wall in the script we don't see a lot of the stuff that he brings attention to when we transition to the screen but on the page it's very like is no one else bothered by that and jack nicholson or mcmurphy is like yeah i don't i don't want to see that i don't think that's right that we just pretend that's not there i think from this scene, even like on the screen, the, the writers do an amazing job of establishing and building tension through McMurphy's breaking of the circle on the page to Nurse Ratchet's instigation, to Harding's breakdown, and ultimately to Bantini's uh, medicated stifling. Because there's a lot happening in this scene and it feels like chaos. And I think that's what it was supposed to be. But what I really liked about McMurphy's character is that like, even though it seemed like chaos around him, he was able to be like, it's not that bad. It's not, <laughs> you guys are acting like this is craziness. It's not craziness. It's not. Bitch, he's tired. Put him to bed. <laughs> Stop letting that guy pee on himself. What's wrong with you people? And then Harding going through, I loved the Harding, they're talking about Harding's wife and I was like, Harding, you're so stupid. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> you're such an idiot <laughs> just like oh that I was Doc like Carr <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm, I'm telling that's his name forever that was Doc <laughs> it's really funny because this entire time I was like live texting my dad because he loved this movie so much and he was like oh I'm I'm McMurphy or whatever and I was and I was like I'm Doc's character because I'm just like what the fuck <laughs> You're fucking crazy. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Every time, that's exactly how... That's his character, and I loved it so much. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you tell him. <laughs> you tell him. tell him. Harding never makes any sense. He never makes a damn bit of sense. And this is a great introduction for McMurphy, because he can already tell, like, the only reason that this feels crazy is because everybody's pretending like this is... A valuable conversation. <laughs> Harding's not making any sense. Clearly, doesn't want to talk about his failing marriage. Like, why, why are we sticking on this? <laughs> so, okay, so I feel like establishing willful ignorance in the setting by stating events that can't be missed and making it so, uh, so McMurphy is the only one to actively notice them kind of puts him in the role of like, even though we can kind of tell at this point he's an asshole. He's the savior. He's the hero. He's a very flawed hero, but he's a hero. <laughs> um, but one major thing that I think 
um, taking out some of those extra details does uh, when we see it on the screen is that it, it doesn't feel so on the nose there it feels like there's more nuance and we don't get McMurphy's big show of humanity with the guy nailed to the wall we don't need to see him proving he's the only one with humanity that's willing to treat these people like people and not chronics and acutes quote unquote I think we get that when we see him interacting in this group I think we get that I agree um mm -hmm. do you guys have anything else to add on that well I just Again, with this fucking extra script, <laughs> this extra ass script, I, and again, it's like they were trying to prove something, but again, when you watch it on screen, it unfolds so much more, like I said, nuance, and it feels better on the screen compared to the script. So, as you said, all these things are happening, Nurse Ratchet is instigating this conversation and he's McMurphy is just sitting there and he's laughing because he's like this is crazy but I mean it's better than where I was mm -hmm. so fine and then you see him in his interactions with Chief with the basketball and how he talks to other people he's like they're just people it's fine mm -hmm. it's gonna be great and then slowly as he gets to know them and realizes that you know the people who are supposed to be taking care of them you know are treating them like shit essentially because this whole thing is kind of a conversation about mental health and how as a society we treated mental health back then so it's interesting to see his humanity unfold but it starts with him just trying to be a normal human to these people and treating them mm -hmm. like people and then realizing it's going to take a little more and that's when he kind of steps into that hero role and he wasn't expecting it yeah yeah so I like that as it unfolds on the screen because it's, like you said, and what, even during this time, like the description of someone being crucified or whatever, like obviously I, I never imagined them actually being crucified to a wall, but it's like they were clearly doing, it was too much. <laughs> it's too <laughs> much. Like you, you get, you get like glimpses of those, of that, like when we see the movie, we do eventually see the guy like thinking that he's nailed to the wall. We do yeah. see that, but we don't need to, like, harp on it, which I think is something that the script does. Yeah. I don't need he's that. Just, he's just a character. Right off the bat, it feels like McMurphy and Nurse Ratched are going to have a strained relationship. But then I think the first scene on the basketball court, which is, of course, much different than the scene that we end up seeing, the first basketball court scene in the film, the one that we get in the script is basically a warning to McMurphy, um, which I'm calling, did shit just get really real? Stakes raised. So scene 25, interior basketball court, day. The price of refusing willful ignorance and maintaining your sanity is forfeiting your mind altogether. And that's when Harding tells him, hey, if you don't be careful, you're going to get either electroshock therapy or if you're really bad, you're going to get lobotomy. That's just the two things. That's how they do things around here. And uh, by this point, we know enough about McMurphy's inherent nature to know that this is going to be a major struggle for him because he's a natural fighter. He does not like any type of like systematic rule over him. And that's what this ward is. And that's what Nurse Ratchet is. Scene 25, interior basketball court day. So the price of refusing willful ignorance and maintaining your sanity is forfeiting your mind altogether. And um, I, that was my takeaway from Harding's warning to McMurphy about like, hey, if you don't be careful, 
you could get electroshock therapy or lobotomy. You really have to follow the rules. Stay in line, keep your head down around here. Otherwise, you'll end up like the people that can't do anything. By this point, I feel like we know enough about McMurphy's inherent nature to know that it's going to be a major struggle for him to fall in line because he just fights too much. He's a natural fighter. He said that in his meeting with the doctor. So I feel like these are really, these are really high stakes for him. It might not be for someone, like if this was Harding's story, I don't think it'd be the same stakes. But with McMurphy, this is going to be a real struggle. And he's going to have to remind himself of that a lot. But on the other hand, he is already starting to get the sense that this is exactly what the patients here might need is some type of like martyr leader upriser following the group therapy session because he even tells the other people like why are you letting her push you around like what is the big deal with nurse ratchet why are you guys just letting her instigate and rule you well i think i somewhere we learn about McMurphy's past and where he like his mom wasn't very good to him or whatever um but I think he hates authority as a character he completely hates authority and so him and Nurse Ratcher were always meant to butt heads but I think furthermore he doesn't like bullies so as he's an asshole and as big of an asshole as he is I think there are moments where you can truly see his humanity where he doesn't like bullies and he doesn't like people picking on other people Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's so drawn to Chief because he's like, he notices he's the quietest one in the room and no one's really paying any attention to him. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to show with that dude. I mean, mm-hmm. I also think it has to do with Chief being the biggest guy in the room and you want to befriend that guy when you're someone like McMurray. But I think, again, all this, all of him like wanting to be the hero also stems from him wanting to fight the bully, essentially. I just never understand how he thinks because I know that he outsmarted the work farm people to get into the mental health facility but I was like I'm that was a win in a way but I'm never sure how he thinks he's going to win in the situation he's in I know he wants to like shake things up and change things but I'm not I'm never quite sure how he thinks he's going to win like if you well I think for him later on when he's in the pool or whatever he's like I got 68 more days I think he automatically assumed that Whatever he did in there, he could just be like, well, it's my mental health. You still got to let me know, let me go at 68 days. True, true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't have a rude awakening because it's just like, uh, you're committed. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is not jail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, it's like, if I was counting down the days, I would keep my head down. But he's like, nope. I got to fight against authority. I was like, but, but why? Don't do that. That's <laughs> just too, his nature, that's, Anne. It's too <laughs> out of character for him to sit back. Because, I mean... If it were me, then I would have been like, cool, I'm just going to play the game and keep my head down and not talk to anyone. Be like chief and make everyone think I'm mute or something. (laughs) Just be chill. But that's not his nature. Especially, again, especially when someone like Nurse Ratchet starts to mess with him. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Speaking of Nurse Ratchet, (laughs) I have a scene to talk about that, you know, was kind of, it was watered down, a little dumbed down in the actual script, but I felt like we needed to talk about it. I'm calling it toxic masculinity called and asked for you. (laughs) Scenes 29 through 31, interior day room night. So I want to preface this section by saying that I don't agree with the way that Nurse Ratchet cares, quote unquote, for these patients at all. She's undoubtedly the antagonist of this film, I think. 
However, McMurphy is definitely leading on the nose with the male gaze. And I think this instance in particular is important to note because of the way it could serve to humanize Nurse Ratchet as a woman subject to the ideologies of the time. Sexism is still real, but it's, it's, it's very candid here. <laughs> so I just have this little snippet here. Uh, I will be McMurphy. Ange, could you be Harding? And then yep. he, can you do the other, the other part? Yes. Okay. Hell, I couldn't get it up over old hatchet base if you paid me. She's not all that homely, Mr. McMurphy. In fact, she must have been a rather beautiful young lady. The men look at the big nurse. The patients look at the nurse's station. Patient's point of view. Big nurse is busy at work. Interior, nurse's station, big nurse's point of view. Night. The patients looking at her. They turn, they turn back to their card game. Reverse angle, camera holds on big nurse as McMurphy's voice is heard over intercom. Yeah, and I'm telling you, she's just an icy-hearted, over-the-hump gal who never got enough of the old wham-bam to straighten her out. Okay, who wants a card? I feel like, so this is what results in response to McMurphy feeling intimidated by Nurse Ratchet. Immediately, he resorts to the idea that the only reason she comes off bitter is because she hasn't been properly screwed. This, this particular dialogue wasn't in the script, but there was dialogue like it about Nurse Ratchet coming out of McMurphy's mouth. And to me, I feel like this kind of humanizes her uh, because the viewer gets a clue that her demeanor could be a direct result of the job she has and the power she has to maintain over grown men who probably would actively speak that way about her if given the opportunity. But she has to kind of not so much beat them into submission, but kind of show them like, I'm serious. Do not fuck with me. <laughs> We're not going to have that type of conversation here. So what do you guys think? I agree. Well, it's like, it's like with most antagonists, there's a reason why they are the way they are. But like you said, so she has to maintain control of these grown men during a time where misogyny was rampant or, you know, it's, it still is. But, you know, back then it was far more on the nose. It was in your face. And for someone to be in control of a group of men, it would normally be a man. But it was up to her. And she also had to be the leader of, a, of the nurses, of, the, of everyone. She was in charge of everyone. Mm-hmm. So she had to maintain this type of look. And I just wanted to mention, Ryan Murphy was supposed to do a show all about Nurse Ratchet and, like, where she came from. So I thought it would have been really interesting because, again, you get to see why she is the way she is. And there could be a million reasons, a million reasons, especially during this time, where women in charge were not respected. Mm-hmm. So I think it does humanize her. And I'm going to be real honest, Rewatching it this time around, it took me a long time to not be on her side. Oh, right, me too. I was just <laughs> like, I don't think she's 100% right all the time. Yeah. But I do understand where she's coming from. And I respect her. And I respect her for, for keeping McMurphy. When they had that board meeting and she's like, we don't like to pass our problems on to other people. I think I can help him. She's but, good at her job. She she wants to be good at her job. She but wants here's the thing about that. To. That is the other side of that coin. That's mm-hmm. like if she has a good heart, but on the other hand, this could also be just her manipulating them so they can she can keep McMurphy because she wants revenge on him. 
Yeah. Because by this time, he's already embarrassed her a lot. And she's like, no, fuck you. You're going to stay here and I'm going to fuck you up. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's like, you can't really tell. And like, you get both sides of her. I feel like now watching it as grown women, you kind of see both sides to it. I so definitely I, see both sides. Yeah. I, I definitely don't think she's as, she's not nearly as evil as I remember. She's just a woman trying to do her fucking job. And maybe you do get to a point, probably as long as she's been doing it, she's had to deal with some, a lot of shit. So maybe when you do get to a point where it's just like, no, my word is law. No. Mm-hmm. Vote's yeah, done. You don't get to tell me that you want this or you want that. I'm not going to deal with tantrums. Done. So... I can respect her. And yeah. go ahead. Yeah, it's like the, with the system of that hospital, it's like she could have inherited that system and she's just, she's continuing in it because it's like they're blaming her for like everything wrong with that hospital. It's like, it, she's doing her job and that she, it's like, it's not her first day on the job. This has been a long practice. This should have been the practice it was before her. It's like, so, but they're blaming her for everything. But I was like, no, she could just be maintaining the, the lawn or maintaining the way this hospital runs and they're but they're just seeing a problem with it because they don't like her in particular mm-hmm. but yes yeah, so like you said I do I did understand her a lot more the second time around watching this movie I do think that there are like times when you can see that she's manipulating the situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and obviously yeah that's pretty awful but again like Mercedes said you don't know what this woman has been through if she's had to be in this type of work her entire life so I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Should we get shirts that say Team Ratchet or what? <laughs> I think th- I think we'd have to be more specific than I don't think we be confused. <laughs> uh, <laughs> team Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> there you go. I like that. And they're like, oh, okay. These are some interesting nurses. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so right around this time. We start to see McMurphy's like, okay, you know what? I'm really going to like start pressing. I'm going to start kind of instilling my will on this institution. People are going to know who I am. And that starts out, that starts out with the, the World Series vote. And obviously that doesn't go well the first time. So McMurphy wants to see the World Series, but the, the group therapy session is interfering with the screening time. And so he tries to rally the guys around the idea of, quote unquote, being good Americans, which he did actually say, like, be good Americans. Why didn't anyone watch the World Series? That's what I felt like he was whining like a baby. Did anyone else get that? Again, that's another another thing where you're like, Nurse Ratchet isn't the bad guy. He's being a little bitch. Yes. <laughs> be good Americans. Come on. It's the World Series. <laughs> but uh, so... <laughs> He, he throws his fit in the middle of the group therapy session, and then afterwards, he, he's all upset, and he's pouting, and this is where we get to this scene, where it's, I'm calling it a World Series rallying cry, scene 42, interior tub room night. So this scene immediately follows the group therapy scene, where McMurphy suggests changing the meeting time for the World Series, and no one backs him up except for Cheswick. Cheswick is always down to back somebody up, even if they don't want it. I love him. He's honestly my favorite. Cheswick? <laughs> Cheswick! I love him! Poor little man. He's the real MVP. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is so 
don't mean to him. I know, but he's like, I just want to help you. I just wanted to defend you. And I'm like, you could defend me anytime. You could take my side anytime, Cheswick. Your voice does matter. Um, <laughs> McMurphy decides to throw the betrayal in everyone's faces and makes a bet that he can get out. So basically he's saying like, you guys are all stupid losers and me and Cheswick are going to be downtown watching the ball game this time tomorrow. You just see. And everyone's like, yeah, right. You can't get out of here. And I still don't know where this comes from. I, I really would like to see the origins of like why this weird faucet system is what we're going with for like escaping. It might have just been the first thing that he saw and he's like, you know what, I'm going to use this thing. So <laughs> McMurphy decides, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to pull this water system out of the ground and throw it through a window and we're going to walk right out of here. And everyone's like, you're full of shit. And of course he is full of shit. He can't lift that thing. And so I think this was a pivotal turning point in the story because even though McMurphy lost the bet, he won the message, which was it's better to do something than nothing at all. You have to defend yourself especially when you feel like you're being attacked by somebody, a.k.a. Nurse Ratchet. Um, so I think even though he felt humiliated by the failure, I think his gumption planted the seed in everyone who witnessed it, which was really powerful on the page and on the screen. I think that's really that's a really important message to convey. And that kind of, it did feel like I felt inspired. And it showed everybody like, hey, well, maybe we were cowards. <laughs> And it goes to show because when they have a second vote, everybody decides to put their hands up. Even though Nurse Ratchet is like, no. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of like the hero's journey. Like he has to fail once in order to earn the win that comes afterwards. Mm. So. The kind of like earn, earning respect mm -hmm. sort, of, mm -hmm. sort of thing. It's like up to this point, maybe everybody wasn't really sure what his values were, but now they can clearly see it's just like, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in no matter what. Even if you guys aren't going to stick with me. I wish you would stick with me. But if you're not, I'm just going to call you stupid and cowards. So I, I thought it was really interesting. I love that scene. Then it leads to what I call home run group therapy. Scene 47, interior day room, day. So I think this scene in, in the script really flies off the page. It really speaks to the notion of writing with the intent of filming. I also think the rhythm of the dialogue is pristine. So there are a few things to unpack. The idea of power as a construct. So this is kind of where things fly off the handle a little bit, unfortunately with Cheswick. Um, so I think it really goes to show, as far as Nurse Ratchet goes, you only have power if other people believe you have it. We Here we see the structure shift into McMurphy's favor almost seamlessly because shit hits the fan and Nurse Ratchet has no control. And I think McMurphy sees that. And he's just like, she, this one ain't shit, <laughs> basically. She doesn't have anything. If, if nobody listens to her, then she doesn't have anything. I think some of the reasons why McMurphy, even though he's a flawed protagonist, he's, um, He's the hero that these patients can get behind because he's genuine and he treats them with integrity. This is where he's saying, like, I don't understand why you guys think that you're crazy. You're not crazy. Don't let them make you believe you're crazy. That's a bunch of baloney. As Mr. Bancini would say. 
(laughs) (laughs) So I think he's engaging and he's not afraid to fight. And I think those last two parts are what shine through in particular in this scene. Um, I want to know what you guys think about the argument McMurphy makes about the ball game, which ends up being Mr. Cheswick making the argument in the actual film, but like baseball being an equally effective form of therapy. Well, I think the whole point of what's, what's important about group therapy is to be able to feel like, um, like you have support Mm -hmm. and like a community. So with baseball, it's like everyone watches baseball, especially during this uh, moment in time. So it'd be like a way for them to come together and a way for them to feel normal, you know, so that maybe, no, they're not talking about their problems or anything like that, but they're bonding and they're getting to feel like a normal, what it is to be normal, essentially. Um, I know with certain things like the structure and keeping to a schedule can make, I, what is the words I'm thinking of? It's something about structure can make you feel more uh, calm or it's just like it's when it's not chaotic it's you can feel more at peace and less anxious so I understand why it's like why group therapy is good and keeping at the same times like you have an understanding I don't know what I'm trying to say right now I'm sorry (laughs) but (laughs) but there also is structure in sports so it's I can see where it can be therapeutic as well because you understand what your role is and you understand you have other people with you and you're on a team. Well, I think that especially in talking about Nurse Ratcher, we we discussed her just following protocol, Mm -hmm. you know, just going by the book. And I think his argument is that like Mercedes, you have in the notes, there isn't one proper form of effective therapy. This could also be very therapeutic. You don't know because you haven't tried it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think sometimes with traditionalists, it's kind of hard to break away from, from what you know is effective. Following uh, that scene, there's an escape sequence. So in the script, this sequence is forever long, forever long. It's, <laughs> it's from scene 52 to 81. That's like too much, but That's a lot. <laughs> I think in general, it, I, I do think it's important that they had an escape scene, and I did like the sequence that ended up being filmed. Um, and I think it's because, I think it served to prove that the men are more capable than the ward gives them credit for, for sure. And I think Nurse Ratchet takes the tone with, takes the tone with them, like calling them boys, even periodically. She does do that over the intercom quite a bit. And I think given the way they're portrayed on the page, sometimes it feels like they actually could be because we didn't get their ages. You could kind of assume how old they are based off of their interactions, like on the page without the the ages. I could tell that Harding was a little bit older, probably middle-aged and Billy of course was like a baby, (laughs) but everybody else is just kind of like in this weird age limbo. Um, so it's easy to, to read, read and have Nurse Ratchet say, like, boys, and you're just like, okay, I guess she does kind of treat them like children, but here we get to see them as men, right? And we get to see them doing, like, super manly stuff, drinking beer and fishing, (laughs) which I, I, I don't know, I, I really, this scene was really, it was dear. I, I loved it. It was very endearing. And the scene that we got to see in the film, it felt like, 
It was condensed a bunch, but I think it was really strategic because it gave McMurphy a chance to prove his capabilities. Like, this is what I'm capable of. I can take you guys out into the world and show you that you can survive out here. And then we also get to introduce Candy and Billy, uh, kiss of death. And we get a chance to look at these patients through another lens. I really love the part on the boat where McMurphy makes them all, except for Harding, doctors. I thought that was, I thought that was amazing because you see like the shift in their demeanor when they, when he's introducing them all one by one to that doc supervisor. And he's like, this is Dr. Cheswick. This is Dr. So-and-so. And they're all like holding their heads up high. Like I am a doctor for today. I loved it. I thought it really gave these characters a chance to be shown in another light and prove their own capabilities to themselves even. What did you guys think? Yeah, like if they were treated with respect, they could res- not respect themselves more, but they could feel better about themselves. But it's, it's the, you can see the way they were living, they were feeling worse about themselves. Like if that's, if that makes any sense, it's like it, small changes to make them feel better each day but it's the way they were living they didn't realize it was that simple I think at this point even McMurphy thinks that he's he's the hero of the story mm-hmm. so he's I, playing into it yeah so I I think that he's definitely feeding into his own ego here but at the same time I think he genuinely just wants them to have a good time because mm-hmm. he sees that half of them shouldn't even be there or they yeah. don't have to be there. And so again, like you said, he's just trying to show them that they can be out in the world and they're going to be fine. They don't need to be cooped up under someone else's thumb for the rest of their life. I love this scene. But of course, there are consequences, unfortunately. As Harding warned McMurphy earlier in the beginning, when they do get caught, he has to face the repercussions. This, of course, doesn't come as a result of like, this instance per se in this film, um, but on the script, it's it's a result. So I wanted to touch on this because I think it's really important. And I wrote the, I, I have the scene description here just so you can get a sense of like, I think the writers did a really good job of describing the sensation of electroshock therapy. Um, so I can read the descriptions this time. The doctor nods to the six aides who move in and gently place their hands in a very professional manner on McMurphy's knees, hips, and shoulders. Once set, the doctor turns to his controls. Shot of McMurphy. As he looks around, not nearly as scared as he is mystified by the whole process when suddenly, without warning, McMurphy is hit by the shock. His face is a contorted mask of surprise and pain. His whole body caught in a sudden spasm, a moment of rigidity. Then McMurphy passes out and his body relaxes. Another moment, then a series of violent body spasms begin following down his body. Now the AIDS function is very clear. As they press down, holding McMurphy firmly to the gurney until the last spasm subsides. I want to do a quick mini breakdown of electroshock therapy, which is now known as electroconvulsive therapy. Um, There's a really great video um, from Ted Ed, which I will link in the show notes for you guys. If you guys are interested in learning a little bit more about this, um, I would recommend. So early use of this therapy 
like the example we see in the script, consisted of a doctor administering a strong electrical current to the brain and inducing a full body seizure that would often result in patients biting their tongues and breaking their bones. And we do see a little bit before this, they have McMurphy put the tongue guard in his mouth and they, they're holding him down. Um, during an electroconvulsive procedure, a patient is put under mild anesthetic and electrodes deliver a series of mild electrical pulses to the brain, causing a huge number of neurons to fire in unison and a brief controlled seizure. Though we're still not entirely sure why it works, this therapy has the ability to change a patient's brain chemistry and can reverse symptoms of mental health conditions. So it's electroconvulsive uh, procedures, electroconvulsive therapy is still something that you could technically use today, but it is still very stigmatized because of the history behind it. Um, but there are quite a lot of uh, patients that do use this as an avenue. Once you've, you've been, you've used drugs and effectively like any type of prescriptions and it doesn't work, if this is something that's a last ditch effort for you, apparently there's a lot of testimonials that say that it could it could work, it could be helpful, but it's so stigmatized that a lot of people just can't get past the idea. I think this description paragraph is really powerful and I think it does a great job of providing balance between the simultaneous internal and external experience. What did you guys feel when you were reading this? Well, I think it's a testament as to why people shy away from it today. It's because mm -hmm. Today, now you have a choice of whether this happens to you. Back then, you didn't. And yeah. I think this, um, the script, the writers did a really good job of depicting that and how horrifying it is when you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It just, it, it always just seems scary. It's, no matter how it's depicted, I've never seen it depicted in a way that isn't terrifying. Ever. Like, no one's ever done it as it's, like, as it's used today. <laughs> No one's ever shown that. Like, no one's shown someone being shown their options, gone through their options, and then saying, okay, let's try this. And then I'm sure they, like, it probably, it probably looks similar, like, what happens when it's going on, but it's probably, I mean, I, I don't think, it's, it probably doesn't look as scary as it does mm -hmm. when it's shown this on time. TV. You know, it's probably, it probably makes you feel safer and, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I totally know what you're trying to get at. And that's why I definitely recommend anyone that's interested in learning more about it, please watch the video, do your research, because it, it's unfortunate that this is a legitimate option out there that is, that is you know, kind of frowned upon because of the, the history behind it. Um, but I think it's, that's why scripts like this are so important. You can kind of get a sense of like, that's how it was, but we've refined the practice. It's no longer like what's described here, but I think it's, it goes into learning your history. You have to understand what was terrible in the past so you don't repeat it in the future. You have yes. to look back and say, wow, that was horrifying. Let's never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment when McMurphy returns, and this is gonna be a big moment later on down the line, but after he has his electroshock therapy, he comes back down and everybody's kind of holding their breath to see what's happened, you know, because he's pretending like he's really been affected by it. And there's this moment of like, oh, my God, they broke him. And then he completely like flips around 
and is able to be his regular self, which I think gives them a bit of hope, even though you can kind of see, I do appreciate on the page that they were like, you could tell that he's a little bit more tired. He's not as gung-ho as he was before. This is, this is like the turning point of like the, the downfall, I would say. But of course, we can't have a downfall without one last hurrah, which I'm calling, boys just want to have fun with girls. A sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so scene 91, interior men's room, or men's dorm night through scene 111, interior day room night. Um, I think this is a really, another really long sequence that we get, but the sequence lays the groundwork for so much of the climax to follow, it's important to talk about. So clearly this is the last hurrah for McMurphy. This is where he plans to make his great escape, but it's also yet another opportunity for him to, in his own way, make available the types of experiences that he thinks these men deserve, especially, I, especially after he finds out that Billy is there voluntarily. He's just like, you are a young kid. What are you doing in here? You should be out there living your life. And so rather than trying to force them to go back out, since that didn't really work out so well, he's bringing the party to them um, by way of whiskey and women. <laughs> um, so it's also a chance for these gentlemen to go wild and let loose a little bit because there's the, the rules in this ward are so stringent. It's hard to have fun at all. Even when they play cards, it's still very... Yeah, you know, this is the most active that I, I think we see the entire group, the entire ward, not just the quote unquote acutes, it's the entire ward getting to let loose and enjoy themselves. I like this scene for what it's worth. What do you guys think about the unfolding of all this? Hmm. I think that it would never actually happen. Oh, yeah. 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 It would never actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very McMurphy of it all. Like, before he leaves, he has to have one last hurrah. Mm -hmm. So it's very in character for him. And I let you know something. If you, if they're that happy, you have to know something's going to go horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just bound to happen. And something does go horribly wrong, as we know. So, sweet baby Angel Billy, scene 18, interior Dr. Spivy's office morning. So... As a, as a portion of the last hurrah, um, McMurphy does try to get Billy to have something that I feel like he is constantly being denied. It's the reason why he nearly committed suicide the first time. It just, he, I think Billy ultimately is looking for genuine affection, fem, feminine affection. And uh, it's something that he is denied time and again. So when he gets the chance to have a night with Candy, uh, which is the girl that he met on the boat and he thought she was beautiful, I think, I really, I really did love how he did try to stick up to himself or stick up for himself to Nurse Ratchet when she was like, aren't you ashamed? And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not ashamed. And I'm like, I mean, in this context, I'll give it to you. You shouldn't be ashamed. It's, I don't think he should have been ashamed of anything. Especially if it was consensual. That's the key. If it was consensual. Here's the thing about that, though. She was um, only doing it because she was told to do it. So that's my problem with that scene. 
Mm. Candy, it, there's a lot of misogyny throughout this entire script, and I think Candy is one of the biggest examples of it, where mm-hmm. she's only doing it because he, she's being told to do stuff. She doesn't, we don't necessarily know that she wants to, but she wants to please her man, so she does whatever. That makes sense. I feel like Candy, everything happens at, like, Candy's expense a lot. Because even when he calls her, he's like, tonight's the night. I don't care how you get a car, just get a fucking car. Like, he's not, mm. he doesn't treat her right, so. Mm. Mm. I guess it, it was consensual, but at the same time, maybe not. Maybe not. I could see so. it from that perspective. So, well, I'll say this. I don't think Billy's wrong to want to have had that experience. I don't think he should be ashamed for wanting to have an experience like that. Agreed. I agree with that. Yeah. It's, it shouldn't be something that he should be shamed for. Um, and so I'm thinking, when we get down to the why, why did this happen? I honestly believe that despite the mild rebellion, wh- why did this happen? Billy ends up dying by suicide, unfortunately. And um, I honestly believe that despite the mild rebellion, Billy still firmly believed in the ultimate power of Nurse Ratchet, especially when she brings up his mother. And her threatening to tell his mother was so absolute. I feel like he honestly believed he was, that that was it. That was the end. If his mother found out, that was, there was nothing else. And I feel like he felt shame for seeking and obtaining feminine love separate from his mother. And up to this point, his attempts have been met with stark disapproval from it sounds like I, I here's the thing I don't understand. I'm not really sure why Billy's mother or why Mer- Nurse Ratchet is making it sound like Billy's mother disapproves. Yes. So with Billy, to me, um, it seems like the whole reason why he craves that feminine love is because his mom's an asshole. Mm. And I, I, I don't I think his mom abuses him. And I think that's why one, because when you see a lot of people who have stutters and things like that, it's because someone there, like it comes from a place of fear. And I think that because the mom is mentioned so much, the mom has something to do with why Billy's in there. So I really think that she was abusive to him. And that's why, like, that's why he craves other feminine love. But Mm -hmm. I think that's also why he's so scared and meek because she made him that way. And so now I feel like being in the hospital was one of the only ways where he felt safe. So now that Nurse Ratchet is like threatening him and she's very clear, she knows that that's going to affect him. She does it on purpose um, to get back some of that power that she's lost because of McMurphy. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how I was seeing it. So he was like, well, they're going to, maybe they'll kick me out or my mom's going to come and I don't want to deal with that. So what's the point? That's what I got. I didn't, I didn't really get it as, like, he disappointed his mom. It was more like he was scared of his mom. And he'd rather die than have to deal with the consequences that involved her. Yeah. That makes total sense. That was one thing I couldn't understand. Thank you for putting that into perspective. Because I was like, I I don't understand quite exactly why it's so, his his dynamic there. Um, Yeah. That's a lot of sheltered kids. It's like, it's just like if you were, when you're, 
like in elementary school or I don't know junior high it's like if you got in trouble at school you would pray to God that like they would handle it inside the school it's like yeah give me give me like a lunch duty give me some type of internal detention yeah Yeah. don't don't take it outside the school I don't need this to be uh, to go to my parents like yeah just leave it in house it's like we don't need to deal with that and I mean just the way that they kept bringing up his mom Mm -hmm. I feel like if like if his mom did love him then maybe that would have been something that he mentioned or maybe he wouldn't even be in the hospital because if he felt safe with his mom he would just go back to his mom and that was one thing that was touched on in the meeting when they were talking about his first suicide attempt and how like how that unfolded and he just couldn't talk about it cheswick my boy cheswick coming in (laughs) in the clutch saying why are you pressing him nurse ratchet Cheswick. Can't we just move on to some other business? <laughs> a real MVP. So I just like I it's unfortunate that it ends this way for him, that his character story ends this way. My next question is why did McMurphy lose his shit on Nurse Ratchet? What do you guys think before I, I say what I I think? Because I think it was very clear at this point that she up until this point, we've been able to make excuses for her. Whereas now it's like she brought up his mom because she knew that this could happen. She knew his history. And when, you know, the way I think of it is, you know, they take the, when you become a nurse, you you do no harm kind of thing. And this definitely, if you know a patient has a horrible relationship with his mom, and if you bring her up, he's going to feel some type of way, why would you do it? it's to inflict pain and he had already disrespected her so she needed to get that power back and i think mcmurphy not mcmurphy i keep saying mcmurphy i don't know is it mcmurphy yeah oh i thought i was saying something else anyways (laughs) i think mcmurphy just sees through the bullshit and i think he had really just taken to billy and actually cared for him and now he was gone and it was directly because of nurse ratchet's actions so to him it was like well you gotta die eye for an eye kind of thing like I think he just snapped and it makes sense because she had done everything I think they had done everything they could to push each other and Mm -hmm. I think nurse ratchet bringing up Billy's mom was her breaking point and like her snapping in her own way and this was how he responded yeah she's no longer trying to be a professional or pretending to be a professional she was being vindictive yeah at that point Mm -hmm. I agree I agree 100% I think he he definitely saw through what what she did in the moment he has seen her exert her power with devastating effects for the last time at this point it could be argued that she might not have known that he could be pushed to that extreme but it's like you said deanna she was his nurse it's her job to know what his triggering what what triggers him so i i think she she facilitated cons, um, conversations about his mind, mindset on specific topic in the group. She's talked through this with him before. So she should know the result of these types of conversations that that revolve around his mom. And, and, his and she, she even says, well, she and I are friends. Mm-hmm. So then there was like, well, then shit, she really should have known. Like she mm-hmm. knew what she was doing. Yeah. I think it was very powerfully written on the page and it was just a really, really powerful scene. See, and in that moment, I'm like, she's a bad guy. You have to kill her. 
<laughs> like that that was the moment where I was like, okay, yeah, murder her. Kill her. <laughs> yeah. She does lose she does lose a bit of her credibility there. Yeah. It's just like it's you could see I I could see earlier on, like, okay, this is a lady that's just been through some shit and she has to lay down the law. But this is like, you gone too far, man. I can't back <laughs> you up anymore. I cannot exactly. be Keswick. okay so just like when they broke out and we had to go through electroshock therapy obviously this has repercussions very fatal repercussions um for mcmurphy so that leads us into act three which i titled don't let your friends get lost so mcmurphy following this incident gets sent up to get a lobotomy um and when he comes back we have a scene in the script where it's just like everybody's waiting to see what's going on but mostly at this point we're, we're focusing on Brandon and he's waiting for McMurphy to like do his thing that he did before because remember when he got his electroshock therapy he was so he came in and he was acting all weird and then he bounced back immediately so he was waiting for that to happen again and unfortunately it does not so McMurphy is back, kind of. He's back in the sense that he's physically there, but mentally he's, he's gone. And I wanted to do a quick note on lobotomy, um, and I will link to the Encyclopedia Britannica in the show notes um, that, where I got this information from. So a lobotomy, also called prefrontal, uh, prefrontal leucotomy, is a surgical procedure in which the nerve pathways in a lobe or lobes of the brain are severed from those in other areas. The procedure was formerly used as a radical therapeutic measure to help grossly disturb patients with schizophrenia, manic depression, and mania, bipolar disorder, and other mental illnesses. So the purpose of this procedure was to reduce symptoms of medical disorders, but that often came at the cost of the patient's personality and intellect. And um, death or suicide were common results. Ultimately, this procedure, for the most part, from, from the research that I did, it, it does ultimately like reduce your personality down to nothing. You're basically just down to motor school skills. Mm-hmm. You can move around, you can breathe, you can eat, but everything else about you is gone. And it's supposed to be so that it can like what they tried to say initially with this procedure is like it brings forth a, a point of calmness for patients that, that go through it. It's like if you somebody that was a little bit off the handles before, you can they are calm now forever. Just a perpetual state of calmness. But to the core of it, it I mean you you kill the person. You kill who they are. And so a personality as big as McMurphy's was notably snuffed out, I think. And Bromden knew that to leave him like that would be allowing him to be lost. And so I think that's that's ultimately why we have the scene where he has to basically like end it for him. Because he knows that McMurphy wouldn't want that for himself. Do you guys have any things to add? No, I think that's true. Like he said, um, like he was telling him, he's like, you're coming with me. And I think for him, it was like, well, I'd rather you, you know, your spirit be free than you be stuck here just 
comatose almost mm-hmm. like I or mean catatonic or catatonic. something yeah that's the word um so I think he was like I'm ready to go and I know that you've been ready to go so let's just let's just go together and this was how he could make sure his friend was at peace and didn't have to stay there it's sad but it's, it is sad it's like a it was mercy mm-hmm. and then Brogdon runs for his life the writer makes a point to remind the reader that Bromden follows McMurphy's initial escape plan to a T, which I honestly don't mind. He picked up that weird water receptacle <laughs> and he ran to the window and he actually escaped. And I think it was a really powerful scene on the page and it was the only way the story could have ended happily. If Bromden had just been like, well, there was my chance. It with it died with McMurphy. I, I that wouldn't have been satisfactory. I think he had to be the one to escape, and it had to be like in McMurphy's name. And I think the connection between Bromden and McMurphy felt a lot stronger on the screen. Did you guys feel that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and beyond the draft, I I think we get some additions that reveal more about Bromden's backstory, which we didn't get in this screen, um, this version of the screenplay. Yeah. Um, kind of just explaining why he was there in the first place. And I think by the end, even though it was a tragic passing of the torch, it was a beautiful one because McMurphy managed to liberate his friend. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think that's what his character had always set out to do when he was shaking up the system. I think eventually he realized, like, these people need to be liberated. And he was successful. He didn't get to liberate the whole ward, but he did get to liberate one person. And I think that that's powerful in itself. Yep, I agree. Bromden's my favorite character. I love him. And I love his hair. (laughs) (laughs) I love his hair. I do. I just love luscious. So luscious. (laughs) I just love that he was playing everyone. And he was like, all right, you white men are going to put me in here. I'm just going to chill. And then I feel like that was a survival tactic. And then he realized when McMurphy came on, he was like, I don't have to live this way. Mm-hmm. So I think that was beautiful. Yeah, that's why I was like, that's why it became the quote unquote happy ending because he, at least he made it out. And mm-hmm. yeah, somebody did. But then them just going back to business as usual was so creepy at the end of the yeah. movie. I was like, don't, don't do that. That's no. But, but yeah. But yeah, so it's happy, but it's like, Life goes on for the other ones that are still stuck inside, so, yeah. It's as happy as could be for this story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, any happier probably wouldn't have been as believable, but it's like, after everything we've went through with that movie, we are like, okay, we'll take what we can get. So, what did you guys think overall? Did you like this movie? Did you like the script? Which did you like better? Personally, me, I like the movie better than the script. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, movie, movie. <laughs> Again, the script was just so much. It was a lot. It yeah. was so much. So I, I like the movie better. Again, I think it's a perfect example of like killing your darlings. Mm-hmm. I think it's a prime example of that. But um, the movie was just much more well done. Just simplify, 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 simplify. simplify. If you could cut it, you could. You should cut it. <laughs> I have to agree with you. Anybody have anything else to say on this one? 
Ryan Murphy make the Nurse Ratchet series. Yeah, yes. I'm interested. I just, I would love that. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> I am interested for sure. Like, how does she turn into a super villain? Let us know. I know. I'm like, why is she so awful? What mm-hmm. happened? Who hurt her? Who hurt her? Who hurt her? <laughs> I'm just saying. Women aren't born this way. <laughs> that is true. That's 100% true. I get behind that. <laughs> that is another one in the bag, you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can catch us next time. We are going to be covering Apocalypse Now. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> this one, this one I have not read or seen before. So it's going to be quite an experience. Ooh! Oh, you seen it, Deanna? Yeah! I what? haven't. I've, I you don't know. Oh, yes, Ange, you and I, we're probably going to have a lot to talk about. Yes. So if you guys are interested, please read and then tune in and you can screen it and we can talk about it. We love to hear from you what your thoughts are. Let us know and we will see you next time. This has been Script to Screen Podcast. I'm Mercedes. I'm Deanna. And I'm Angela. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Stay up to date on all things Red or Die Chicks at the WODC.com and follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at the Ride or Die Chicks, on Twitter at WODC underscore official, and on Facebook at the Ride or Die Chicks.